Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM. Good morning and welcome to America's Web Radio and Medicine on Call with Dr. Elena George. Uh, Dr. George is stuck in some of our uh, proverbial Atlanta traffic and uh, due to our uh, rain that we're having today, as anybody in Atlanta knows, it can be terrible when it rains and uh, we're just happy that it's not... uh, a firmer type of rain called sleet or something like that. But Dr. George is on her way. Right now we have a fellow Texan on, which I'm always delighted to have uh, a Texan on. And uh, we've got um, Dr. Melissa Joyner on from Houston. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. Well, I must say Houston has had its fair share of rain. We don't have any right now, but our expecting a little bit this weekend so my sympathies to the people of atlanta um, but uh, hopefully this will pass and uh, it won't be too much rain to cause excess flooding well we're having one of those uh, gully washers as we used to call them up in lubbock so uh, um, it'll go away we'll have a sunny day uh, hopefully by this weekend anyway uh, Dr. Joyner is a specialist and a very, I I find your specialty very unique in that uh, it's in so much of a demand today because it is a central coordinator for cancer patients and that's oncology. And uh, how how did you come to pick that specialty, Dr. Joyner? So I am a radiation oncologist and associate professor for UTMB, University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston. And when I was in my training, I actually switched from surgery into radiation oncology because I felt a true calling. Um, At the time, it was motivated to help women with breast cancer, and I had worked at the Audie Murphy VA, which is an incredible organization that's connected to University Hospital and the medical school at San Antonio, and I found a great love to help provide our veterans the highest quality of care, and they were so appreciative. And so that became one of my core elements was prostate cancer and breast cancer, and just have had a wonderful experience over the years and in the past two to three years I decided to make it my mission to be an advocate for not only my patients but all people out there that were facing cancer or really difficult health problems and I took that to Washington and that's where I met Dr. George where we both shared a common passion and the passion to do things right and to help address the many problems that are now readily apparent to most people out there about the healthcare system. <laughs> I uh, I don't know if Dr. George mentioned it to you, but I uh, um, <laughs> Dr. George <laughs> blew me away uh, about three weeks ago. I, I uh, just came out of uh, quadruple bypass uh, about. Uh, well, I had it on uh, the 5th of January, and um, I was in my room before surgery, and I looked up and I said, God, that lady looks like Dr. George. And I looked again, it is Dr. George, and she'd come up to visit me before surgery, and uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful person, and, uh, you know, you hit it on the head with Dr. George. She, she wants to help everybody and uh, she is just uh, a fantastic person and uh, uh, you have found a very good friend uh, well i tell her that we're uh, twins fraternal twins um, as i'm caucasian and she's african-american so it could be a little confusing to people Uh, (laughs) but just one of the finest 
physicians and women that I've had the pleasure to meet. And today we were planning, which I know she'll be stepping in shortly, to discuss another area of passion where we really see an epidemic uh, problem that is really, in my opinion, a runaway train. And this is the homeless people on our streets who have so many health problems. Many of them have cancer, right, in conjunction with a host of other medical problems. Uh, A large percentage have mental illness, right? Mm -hmm. And when I hear the rhetoric being talked about on the radio uh, about, you know, immigrants and people wanting to come to this country and all of their rights, I hearken back to what about the rights of the American citizens that are living on the streets? that have all kinds of problems and are apparently being ignored. And in Houston, Texas, as I drove to work today, just on one stretch, which covers about a six-block area, I saw no less than 150 people laying under a bridge in sleeping bags. And my heart is breaking for those people. Yeah, you know, you... You can go to what I consider one of the most beautiful states in the United States, not in the continuous United States, but you can go to Hawaii, and I've never seen so many homeless people in my life. I, and, you know, I had been to Hawaii for the first time ever in my life, and this was about five years ago. And I, too, was shocked at the number of homeless people living in tents, makeshift structures, no tent. And again, this is a problem that has reached, you know, epidemic proportions. And these people are citizens, and they've paid taxes for years, and many of them are veterans. And... We have to help our own before we can take on other problems. And it's not being insensitive to anyone that wants to come here. But when I see a man that's in his 40s that was a veteran that is presenting to me with cancer and he's living on the streets and we're trying to give him treatment and that problem nobody wants to talk about. When I'm in Washington, I see signs. There's a congressman from Indiana who has a sign on his door, refugees welcome. But you walk one block from the congressional building and the last three years, I have seen the same veteran who is an amputee that is living on the streets in need of money. And I have bought him lunch and given him money every time and I think, where's the sign that says homeless veteran welcome? Yeah, uh, as a veteran, and uh, we are very supportive. I have a son that's a captain in the Air Force, and uh, I, uh, veterans are very near and dear to uh, America's Web Radio, and we, uh, we support them. Um, we, here, we, here. Shout out to our veterans. We're lifting you up, and I, and I want to change that scenario that I just described so that no veteran, no American citizen is out on the street. You know, they deserve better. They deserve our respect and they deserve to get great care. You know, and, and, and it's, it's going to start that problem it from has, not only a health professional standpoint, but from just a community standpoint it, it has to be immediate help it can't it can't wait until they've been there because once they've been there they stay there almost and and a lot want to stay there whereas if we help them the transitioning is is a big problem and this is something that has to be addressed we need you know we need people in Congress that have been there and done that. Uh, it's what, 1% of Congress has ever even served. They have no clue what it is to be in, to be shot at, 
to be hungry, to be cold, to be live the life of our our armed forces, and they have no they have no clue of how to treat a veteran. They have no clue of our active duty folks, what they go through. Uh, they have no clue of separation of families, and. Uh, I'm sorry, you don't even want to get me started on uh, how I feel about Congress and veterans. But well, we, ha we have we, a veteran. We are the of land of the free, and my father was in the military. He was a physician in the military. My grandfather was in the military. I will tell you, the answer is is that the lifestyle that we all lead is in large part because of these fine men and women that have served and are continuing to serve and will serve in the future. And we have to ensure that we give them the highest standard of care, the highest measure of respect. And if we use them as a barometer for how we treat our fellow Americans, we'll be doing a good job, right? Amen. If we're giving them the highest standard of care, respect, and they are well paid, they have good housing, then that will roll into every other facet of America. And I think what has happened, and there, while there's many causes, it's multifactorial, at this point, somehow things have gotten way out of whack. And we just, as a nation, cannot have millions of people living homeless on the street that are American citizens and that nobody seems to see. In fact, I saw congressmen making a wide walk around these homeless people in Washington, D.C. It's, it's as if they're invisible and they can't be seen. And again, I hearken back to putting a poster on your door and saying, refugees welcome. Why don't you say homeless people welcome that live a block and a half away? Oh, it, it would be... Uh... <laughs> Most of the congressmen that I know would uh, uh, shrink at the thought of having a homeless person uh, smell up their office, maybe, heaven forbid, uh, because they smell like they've been outside overnight. Uh, right. But many of those people, this is the uncomfortable truth, they're out there because they may have health problems. They may have had a tragedy in their life. They may have had mental illness which again requires medical care. Mm -hmm. And that is the mechanism that we have to address. And I know it's not a sexy dialogue, but we have to provide good health care to yeah. our citizens. There's such an we easy have to have answer. We have a mechanism where they can contribute. There, there's such an easy answer. Give physicians a tax break, and secondly, take care of their insurance. I, I know so many physicians that would give one, two, three, four, five hours a week to the homeless in a heartbeat if they didn't have to worry about insurance, and if they were given just some kind of small tax break incentive, they'll be there every week without, you know, come rain or come shine, they will be there for the, for the veterans, they'll be there for the homeless. You but know, in general, I will tell you, physicians are kind and giving, compassionate people, right? You know, the media always will find somebody that's, you know, to hold up as not representative of that. But my brethren are good people. I always say, we're good peeps, and you are correct. We all are willing to give of our time and expertise. We have all trained very hard for many years. And I tell people, you know, the notion that you, everybody wants a great physician. You know, they want somebody that's dedicated and compassionate. And so that should have some value too, right? People Absolutely. think nothing. You see corporations that are paying attorneys $1,000 an hour, $1,500 an hour, but they don't want a physician to make $50 an hour who's working in a hectic ER and has to be spot on by the second. Somehow we've gotten out of whack and we've let talking heads demonize the medical profession 
But let me tell you this, everybody is going to need a doctor at some point in their life. No question. And we used to be, I call myself kind of an old school doctor, kind of when we were in the rural area, and you really cared about your patients. And, and we have to get that aspect back into medicine, too. Dr. Joyner, on that note, we've got to take a break, and uh, Dr. George is here, so when we come back from break, you'll be with Dr. George. We'll be back, Medicine on Call, right after this. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Thank you, Dave, for holding down the fort for me, and thank you, Dr. Joyner, once again for joining us today. I think one of the one of the interesting things about my show is that it talks not only about the the nuts and bolts of healthcare; it, it goes into the social, the political, the underpinnings of what's making our healthcare system work, or in this case, not work. I think we've gotten we've gotten, as you said before the break, away from what makes you know, what, what should be important to our society, to our healthcare system, and as a doctor, to our patients. I mean, what you just described of people walking around and walking by and ignoring people who they're supposed to represent. These are representatives of, of, of the people. I don't think that they're thinking this way. The whole Affordable Care Act is a total example of tone deafness. No doctor who practiced medicine was up there. All the things that they're that they've put online actually don't really serve the patients, but it does make money for middlemen of various sorts. And what you described of, you know, going back to basis, if as you treat the the most vulnerable in our society, that speaks a lot about the society and the the seniors, the veterans, people who are who can't protect themselves or are homeless. I'm not sure that they're getting. Oh, I'm pretty sure they're not getting a standard of care that you or I would want to give them. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you, Dr. George. I think that, you know, as I tell people, the Affordable Care Act was not done to fix the medical problems that you and I see out there day in and day out. I don't know, you know, because I wasn't a part of it, I can't say what their true agenda was, but I read the document. Mm-hmm. And I gotta tell you, as I read, I became more and more shocked. I also thought that parts of it were written with people holding crayons because <laughs> it made no sense. It didn't address many of the pressing problems. And it probably could have been done much more simply with just an expansion mm-hmm. of the Medicaid, Medicare program to cover some of the people that they were trying to address. Having said that, we also have a problem in society where if you don't have any value assigned to something, for example, it's free, mm-hmm. it almost has no value to you. So I will tell a story of where we've gone awry. I have a friend that works at one of the largest children's hospitals in the country here in Houston. And people will come in and they will have their iPad, their iPhone, their gel nails, hair done, you name it, and they are not paying a dime into the system, right? Mm -hmm. So they have every accoutrement of life that you would want, and I don't begrudge anybody for wanting a better life or better things, but they aren't contributing to the system, right? And if they aren't contributing even a dollar, you lose sight of also taking good care of yourself, you know, having a plan. Now, certainly this is at a children's hospital. These are the parents, Mm -hmm. not the children. I'm not saying I don't want any child not to have the highest standard of care. So I don't want anyone to think that. I'm just saying that we, we all have to contribute to make the system better because there are truly members of society that can't contribute. As you just stated, you know, we have elderly people. We have veterans with severe injuries. We've got very young people. And, but it's incumbent upon the rest of us to help provide a good system and to pay, you know, an appropriate share. Well, so it, I, uh, I, I am passionate about that. I think if we also have people become more educated on how to take good care of themselves. Diabetes, Dave and I were talking, I'm from Texas. We are the diabetic capital of the world. 
you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's something that we can affect with our diet and exercise. So it's, it's a very complex problem, and, you know, I don't want to reduce it to one soundbite, but some of these important mini-statements can help start to affect the process and affect change in the process. I think you're absolutely right. One of the things that struck me about the Affordable Care Act was the, how can I put it, one-size-fits-all approach to health care. What you just described, diet, actually having patients be a partner in their care, and that not only means coming to the appointment, but having skin in the game. I don't think that patients should be on the hook for these crazy deductibles and co-insurances that are totally rigged and ginned up. Nothing's that expensive. The doctor right. visits and, about you know, 50 I bucks. You, I had a patient who was a truck driver mm-hmm. who came to me who I treated for prostate cancer, and he said, Dr. Joyner, my insurance after the Affordable Care Act took place, nobody wants to talk about these. Again, I call them inconvenient, uncomfortable truths. Mm-hmm. His insurance tripled. And he was asking me, tell me what's the most important test that you need to order. And I said, your PSA, prostate-specific antigen for you guys out there who all of you need to have your PSA checked if you're over 50 um, and the digital rectal exam. I'll put that plug in because I'm passionate about that. (laughs) But he was literally asking me to choose one test. So it wasn't now because he couldn't afford the deductible. It wasn't what he needed. It was just I had to choose one of the highest needs. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. And, and that occurred over a two-year period. He had this just astronomical rise. And, and it got to the point where he was telling me, I'm not even going to be able to see you. So how is that right? How did that help American citizens? It didn't. Right. The working poor, as I call them, that means the middle class have been put in a position that if you make $70,000 as a family, but your insurance costs you 10000 and your deductible is $7,000, you can't do it. No. I mean, you have to choose paying the mortgage or paying for your health care or you know, buying groceries or maybe – this is – out there for people taking a vacation versus paying for your health care. It should have come down to that. But the meme and the the rhetoric was if you question it, you're a bad person. You want people to die. I mean the way they, they frame this, we need to take a step back and actually call people on this heated rhetoric that's designed to shut people up. It's not about yeah, reality I, at all. I have to agree with you. I have been appalled and I don't use that word lightly at hearing um, congressional leaders call people killers Mm -hmm. or murderers if you don't agree with them. Um, And they have no idea of what they're talking about. So, you know, I, I think that with all due respect, Congresswoman Pelosi hasn't spent a whole lot of time in health clinics among the people that can't afford care or even patients that I put in the category of working poor, and she has no cognition of what is happening around her. And so when she levels those statements, at best they're offensive to people like me, Mm -hmm. but it's criminal in the sense of she is taking advantage of people that don't understand the complexities of the system and just lobbying volleys at fine men and women that are out there in the trenches, that's you, me, all the doctors, nurses, techs, that day in and day out give unselflessly. You know, I tell people, I can't even tell you how many games, school events, you name it. You, you can name anyone, throw it out there for my children, my boys that I've missed, because my duty to give good patient care came first. So to characterize a doctor as anything less, in my mind, is just unconscionable. And so, you know, I, I think that all of that is inflammatory. It foments hate. It's stirring the pot. And it does nothing to move us in the right direction. I absolutely agree. The patient you just gave an example of, 
exemplifies what this system has done. They double down on the most expensive aspects of the healthcare system. They put the onus on the patient to pay for the majority of it. Imagine you're paying a thousand dollars a month for insurance, and the insurance company doesn't kick in a dime until you meet two hundred fifty. I'm sorry, twenty five hundred, seven thousand, ten thousand dollar out of pocket before the insurance kicks in the first dime. They're actually making out like a bandit, just collecting premiums and collecting money from the government with subsidies, and they're just making, they're building palaces and on the backs of patients. But we as physicians now have to take our power back. We let the system run and define us and treat us as if we are a, you know, a monetary commodity so that we can just be a pipeline to make money for these entities. We need to pull our, our, um, our consent out of the system, I think. Well, I agree. I think that's a very eloquent statement, and I think physicians have been taken advantage of. We're so focused on the patient, and we're not allowed, you know, there's no physician union, right? Mm-mm. And it's actually, we've been pitted against one another for years, right? And the way the systems are designed, and so making one person the spearhead or deciding. Instead of just overall lowering the cost of care, you, you briefly commented on that, you know, a CBC to actually run, you know, is a very inexpensive test. Why don't we start trying to control costs on some of those levels, but again, also maybe change the whole insurance paradigm where you do have some base rate, but then the other is kind of pay as you go, mm-hmm. you know, in conjunction with the rate. So you're not paying this massive amount of premium and then never really getting to use it. Exactly. You can't use it. I mean, the example I gave, 70000 1000 a month insurance. And, you know, someone may say, well, that's not accurate. Okay, let's call it 500 a month for a family of four with a 7000 deductible. They still can't afford it. That's 13000 and that's And that 70000 is before tax. But if you think about it, too, if you never get sick and you never access the system, you just gave away $13,000 to some entity and that's wrong, right? I mean, right. That, that doesn't even make sense. And any, if you think about it and break it down, it's not a good system. It doesn't work. And to give, to centralize it and allow the government to become the arbiter and the pipeline to it is not working. I agree with you. Well, look at us, right? We came together through the National Physicians Council. And I know most people don't know what that organization is, but it's a council of physicians from all over the country that are trying to positively impact the healthcare system. And you and I, as I told Dave, and as we opened the show, you know, we're twins. I feel like I was separated from you at birth. And, but on ideology, on love for people, on trying to do the right thing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But we would have never been able to come together if it were not for that entity, right? Because our specialties don't really cross paths. You live in a different city. And yet we need to come together as physicians and have these conversations and stop letting a talking head who has very little information, but they do have an earbud in, Mm -hmm. that somebody's talking to them while they're trying to carry on a conversation, let stop letting them speak and the americans are listening to 30 second sound bites and making their decision because they say well you know i heard this on this tv station they said x but x isn't even true and in 30 seconds how can you believe any of that you know that's true so it's incumbent upon every physician i think every person out there that has an understanding to speak up and I recognize that that's scary because you're afraid you're going to be attacked, right? I've had physicians in the doctor's lounge say, thank you so much. I don't want to, to be that vocal because I'm afraid I'll be, there'll be a news article written about me or somebody will hurt my practice or my family and, you know, or I'll be audited. Isn't that a travesty for just trying to do the right thing? It is. I mean, it really is open season on people that speak truth to power in any in, in any arena. You know, I don't care if it's politics or healthcare. We have to. We really. You, you just described the problem. We've been 
put upon in such a way that we don't want to put our heads up because there's going to be a consequence. But what people don't understand is we're dealing with bullies, and the best way to handle a bully is to come at them. They back down nine times out of ten. And we have the power of right on our side. The patient care is what it's all about. And if we take our power back, become advocates for our patients, and the patients don't know this. You just described, and you said a very, you said a mouthful. They don't understand the system. They don't understand how it's working against them. And being their advocate means education. And on that note, let's take a break because I think that's one of the things we need to concentrate on when we come back. You're listening to Medicine on Call. health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. We're speaking with Dr. Melissa Joyner, a radiation oncologist who practices medicine in Texas in the Houston area. Now, before the break, Dr. Joyner, we were talking about solutions and educating the patient. What do you think that we can do to, you know, we're, we're insiders, we have shorthand, but how do we let the patients know that, they, that there is an alternative out there? If you pay for your procedures and your your doctor visits out of pocket, it's cheaper than accessing your health insurance plan. You know, you can use direct primary care practices. What's your best thought about disseminating that information so people know they have a choice outside of an insurance market? You know, right now, I think it's a two-prong approach, right? I think patients need to put pressure on the insurance companies. Mm-hmm to change their practice, right? And then they also need to avail themselves of some of these physicians that will give you a cash price. Even my institution, right, Mm -hmm. a large academic center will give a cash price to people that either don't have insurance or they don't have good insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell people all the time, because I myself have paid for people's prescription or giving them cash money because they've told me they don't have enough to eat. You know, years ago, my husband and I said we would stop giving to a couple of the big entities um, as part of our annual contribution giving Mm -hmm. and give directly to patients who had a real need. There are primary practice physician, family care, internal medicine physicians out there that just charge a flat fee. And I, when I was a medical student, I worked for one in San Antonio briefly on a rotation. This is a great option for patients. Uh, he charged $50. That encompassed everything of the visit. There was no insurance filing. That took care of all of his exams, and it covered two basic medical tests, like a CBC, and which is checking your blood work, and a basic metabolic profile, right? Mm -hmm. Also blood work. I think that is going to have to be a option that Americans have to understand going forward, but I think that they also, we need to fix the insurance paradigm so that it is more lucrative for people to get insurance and have it serve their needs versus being more lucrative to corporate America. I agree. There, there has to be a two-pronged approach on that. 
I think Congress could actually get involved. I mean, years ago, I thought of having changing the way the healthy insurance market works. For example, if you have a deductible, you don't meet that deductible. It rolls over to the next year. So you actually have almost like a cash in the bank, so to, think, so to speak. Whatever you pay. That's a great in. idea, right? Yeah. As a former business person. I, I think that is a, a wonderful idea. I also think that people should be able to buy uh, something that you may have heard me propose to Congressman Sessions is having a catastrophic type of insurance plan mm-hmm. because my type of care is expensive. Mm-hmm. The machines are expensive. You require physics, therapists, the doctor, you know, a whole fleet of players in order to deliver this type of care. But if you had a program where people could pay into that care and execute on it, that would be ideal too versus paying for all these other things mm-hmm. that they're not going to use. You know, you're 20, you really just need catastrophic care. Correct. Right? Right. And but I love the deductible idea because you know nowhere else, I mean even in, when you work in an environment you get to keep a portion of your vacation if you don't take it, right? Mm-hmm. We don't penalize you year after year for working hard, you know? And my shout out is everybody should take their vacation for health reasons, but sometimes we're, we're all not able to do that. So I think that that, a catastrophic program, I think lowering costs, I think the insurance industry, um, with all due respect, they they are making, when you have CEOs of companies making in the tens of millions of dollars annually, but you, again, I go back to, you don't want to pay a doctor enough money that they can even pay off their student loans. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Well, it's about control. You know, this is a system that's built on being lockstep. The, the people who are making the money, these entities, these corporate entities that are making the money, need us to be the lever, you know, the, the button that keeps getting pushed to, you know, to generate the cash machine. And we're, I think doctors are actually one of the groups of people who are, they like to go our own way. It's like herding cats to make us do anything. Even if we wanted to have a union, I don't think it'd be very successful because doctors don't think alike. But the fact that we're under duress, what you just described in the doctor's lounge, I don't want to lose my, my business. I don't want to lose my patience. I don't want my reputation to be destroyed. I don't want to be fined. I don't want to be peer-reviewed. I don't want to be put in jail. All these things actually have had the, the, the effect of making us, of cowering us, and of making us go along with a system that we fundamentally don't like and we don't believe in. And I think that's one of the reasons that we're seeing a lot of doctors you know, committing suicide, leaving the profession, the apathy and the demoralization of us is it's just out of bounds right now well i think you're right and physician burnout is increasing at an overwhelming rate because of this pressure i mean you when i walked into the clinic this morning and started seeing patients at 7 a.m i i feel this overwhelming need to take care of my patients Mm -hmm. to protect them to give them the highest standard of care, the gold standards that I tell each person. Every person deserves that, mm-hmm. right? But if I have all these other ancillary pressures on me, and some are not even real, they're fabricated, right? Mm-hmm. Then if I'm, if I'm supposed to ask someone, you know, did they wear their seatbelt? Did they brush their teeth mm-hmm. this morning? Did they do that versus... I need to see how you're feeling from your treatment. I need to make sure that you feel safe at home and have someone to give care. But if I'm sidetracked by all these other detractors, that's not good. It's not good for the practice of medicine. It's not good for the physician. It's not good for the patient. And there's only so much that physicians can take, and they're being squeezed and demonized. I mean, one of my biggest objections to the Affordable Health Care Act, I was for every patient having an avenue to care. Obviously, I'm for that. I want to help homeless people. I want to help people with mental illness. But what I'm telling you is when you demonize doctors as part of that document, boy, that's the wrong way to go. And, and that document was not pro-doctors. 
No, it wasn't. It was a divide and conquer document. The nurses were the, the how can I put it, the next stop. You know, they've pitted nurses against doctors. One, because nurses are cheaper labor for the time being. I think they were very short-sighted about it. And the nursing profession has been devastated by it as well. Registered nurses left in droves. I mean, they're all, well, most of them are case managers or doctor of nursing, a lot of administrative things. And the front line of care has gotten to be the people with the least experience, physician assistants. Right, and, you know, we're in yeah. the trenches, right? Yeah. You and I are in the trenches. That's what people forget. We're out there day in and day out taking care of our patients. But, you know, what has gone on, coincidentally, at the same time, because of all this legislation, much of which is nonsensical, is that administrative costs are skyrocketing. Good point, yes. And the number of administrators <laughs> is skyrocketing. But the bottom line is the person in the trenches on the front line, without us doctors, there is nobody, right? I mean, you have to have the doctor providing the care. Downstream from that, if you don't have the doctor, you don't need anyone else. And yet the system has gotten it totally backwards. It's just layer upon layer of administration and these systems that can't be done. And when we had a meeting uh, in Washington and there were about 15 of us doctors there, I think you were there, and the undersecretary, we were presenting on some of the CMS deficiencies. And I said, listen, the way your system is now set up, it penalizes the doctors that are trying to take care of the sickest sickest, Mm -hmm. the most underserved, people that may not have the ability to comply, right? They may not have the mental capability to understand how complex their care is, right? Right. And yet we're going to penalize those doctors if the patients don't do well. I said, Hmm. who's going to want to take care of those people? Nobody. You know, and yet those people are some of the most deserving. That takes me all the way back. That's my segue to the opening to the homeless people that get brought in and they need an advocate, right, Mm -hmm. desperately. And you're going to penalize their main advocate, that physician that says, okay, I'm willing to help you. I'm going to go get you something to eat. We're going to take care of this. We're going to try to get everything set up. And yet if you don't follow my instructions, I'm going to be penalized. There's something very much wrong about that. Let's right. <laughs> it's tragic, right? It, it almost brings tears to my eyes, even as I, because I can see the faces of these people. Oh, maybe we ought to bring that to the fore in D.C. On that note, let's take our last break. You're listening to Medicine on Call. Welcome back to Medicine on Call. Today we're speaking with Dr. Melissa Joyner, a patient advocate, a patriot, and a great friend. Thank you again for joining me, Melissa. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. It is so great to be with you this morning. I have a quick question for you about your profession, your specialty, because you really are one of what you do is, as you said, a big ticket item. You're seeing patients at their most vulnerable and their and their and their worst, and is there something, and you mentioned something about having a, a pot of, of uh, money that people can use to access to, to get care, but what is, I know your hospital, is, is it unique in the sense that it, it kind of reaches out to people who don't have the means? You know, as part of an academic enterprise and then working at a hospital that's located in downtown Houston and serves, you know, a very diverse population. You know, we have, we're adjacent to downtown, so we have, you know, people that are successful to many very poor areas, you know, that represent an inner city type Mm of uh, region and population. I, I cover a broad breadth. My issue as I look at patients and, you know, I I cry with my patients. I'm a huge patient advocate and an empath, and so I feel their pain when they're anxious about getting the care they need. The issue is, is if we had a mechanism right now that we could cover catastrophic care, Mm -hmm. which would include, um, you know, a car accident, a diagnosis of cancer, something truly 
um, unexpected, right, mm-hmm. that, that always involves a huge cash outlay, you know, trauma. Um, I think we would be better served in providing more affordable health care options. You know, people that have pre-existing conditions, that's a separate complex discussion, and we need a different bucket of money to handle those individuals because they do require care. But I tell people, when you look at corporate America, and when I was in corporate America, usually it's the 80-20 rule. About 20% of your employees encompass the majority of your medical expenses, right? Mm -hmm. And so for those people, maybe we find a way to create a bucket of money and a management system that will better serve providing care for that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that has been an oversight that really has never been addressed, right? And again, I look at my own sons. I have a 24-year-old and a 21-year-old. You know, one of them has some health care problems, but they're pretty well managed. But he clearly doesn't need to be paying for this big bucket of money for OB-GYN care, you know, for pregnant women. I mean, it's not really in his bailiwick, but he needs catastrophic coverage, right? Right. And he needs then an affordable option for what you've been talking about, just for his primary care and to follow up with with his problems that he has. But that can be balanced, you know, with an out of pocket expenditure by him that's affordable because he's not going to have $500 $500 a month in medical expenses. And so to make him pay five to $700 a month in an insurance premium for a kid that's, you know, got a, you know, $35,000 a year job is impossible. Right. It's not. But, right. So, I, you know, my take is we have to have some other options. And I, I, I personally like the idea of some kind of catastrophic insurance because, you're saying, you know, in general, you're a healthy person. You'll go for your annual preventative care visit, right? Mm-hmm. And if we could get people to do that and get on a plan for better health, because a lot of conditions that we see, with all due respect, and is that some of them are self-induced. We eat too much. We drink too much. We smoke too much, right? Mm-hmm. And we've got to change that paradigm, too. And I think that goes to your statement of personal accountability. That's true. But if you have money in the game, you're more likely to be personally accountable. Any kind of skin in the game. Absolutely. You'll shop around. If you have nothing, that's why I say, if it's for free, it has no value to you. No. But if you're a smoker, and and we say, well, you're a smoker, so if you're going to choose to smoke, you've got to pay an extra $100 a month. To me, that seems fair. You're a smoker. You know you're taking on that consequence. Here you go. But if you don't smoke and you don't drink, you should have the lowest premium, right? Yeah. And, and we don't do that. No, the fact, Affordable Care Act. we're kind of penalizing people that are healthy and asking them to pay even more well, that's for the what ones the, that choose not to be healthy. Well, that's what the Affordable Care Act did, right? The, the millennials were on the hook to pay more than people with medical conditions that are, you know, middle-aged or senior. And now they switched it so that the seniors are paying more and it penalizes the healthy seniors who took care of their bodies on, you know, the whole time. I mean, it's ultimately, it needs to be down to an individual um, choice, an individual, uh, you know, consequence, not groupthink. Groupthink never works. You know, the tribal mentality that they're trying to engender in our country where if you look like this, you should think this way. And if you have this, you know, amount of money in your pocketbook, then you should think this way. Everybody's an individual. We need to come back to that. Because right. that's well, you what healthcare I, is. I, I hate that. Those are fighting words to me, Dr. <laughs> George, because I have yet to meet people. If I look at my patient population, I say women. I have yet to meet someone that has a different body part, right? <laughs> if you're a woman, you got pretty much the same parts. If you're a man, you pretty much got the same parts. And those don't those parts don't change based on your ethnicity, your age, your religion. Now, you could have had some parts removed for sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this this feeling like you're saying where people are trying to pit us against one another or hate one another, 
I never grew up. I'm a Heinz 57 baby. <laughs> Man, I got it all going on in my family tree. And so to say that just if you look at me and say, well, okay, she's blonde-haired, green-eyed, you know, she's not going to be like me, that is a, a false assumption from the get-go. Agreed. We need to love one another, treat each other with respect, and don't try to pit us against one another. It's just control. It you is know? control. You can't pay attention 100%. to what's going on if you're so angry or hurt. You know, it just lets you be a victim. Well, and it also disenfranchises people. So if you say something, you say, well, the reason why you're not getting this, you know, is because you're ex. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm not afraid to bring up any example. You know, I listened the other night. We've had all of this talk in the news about DACA. But, you know, people forget Martin Luther King. I have a dream, right? Mm-hmm. We're all people that have dreams. Everybody has dreams. Everybody should. Every child should have the dream of a better tomorrow, right? I hope tomorrow will be better. I hope and pray for my patients that they will all do well. And so to say that I hope more for one patient than another, that's not true. And it shouldn't be true for anyone. We should all hope that we lift one another up to be better, to rise above. And the the rhetoric that says not or somebody else has more of a right than others, you know, it's just, it's, it's terrible. You know, I couldn't, I, I can't even say anything else. You've just put a cherry on, on the top on what this show was about and what, ev- what living should be about, frankly. In the minute that we have left, how can people reach you if they want to, you know, find out what you do or, or ask about your, your specialty or maybe, hopefully, God forbid, come and see you? Well, I can be reached. My office is 713-757-7593. Uh, that is the office at St. Joseph's Medical Center in Houston, Texas. They can also find me on the internet if they go to www.utmb.edu as I am an associate professor for the University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston, although I work in Houston and live in Houston. So I am happy to address any questions um, and I hope that I get the opportunity to talk to you more because I am just lifting you up for all that you do to try to make the world a better place and the patient advocate that you also are. Oh, thank you. It's a, you're a blessing. And I want you to come back any anytime you want because I want to talk about the cancer rate and what people can do to, to lower the risk and just be able to play the game in such a way they don't enter the system. So, Well, I would love to do that. And as you know, I'm a talker. So... <laughs> <laughs> Anytime, and I, I would love to help. Um, I'm a huge proponent of, you know, taking care of oneself. So, yes, I would love to do that and also talk to you about HPV and some other areas of passion that we can help to minimize the risk of getting cancer. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for listening to Medicine on Call. Have a great day. Revolutionary Talk for Revolutionary Times. Liberty Talk FM.